to, to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to cover chapter 18 and about half of 19. And what we're going to be looking at is the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Um, and so this morning we enter into some of the most difficult passages to read and discuss. Over the next two weeks we'll look at the, the, the betrayal, the arrest, the trials, and the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus, whom we've studied for so long, he's going to be um, treated in such horrible ways over this next time, and even his own disciples uh, will abandon him, and one will even deny him. Um, when you and I sin, we really should remember these events, uh, because as we will learn, the price of sin is very great. It's important for us to remember that. Um, Jesus never blamed his disciples, not even Judas, um, because he was willing to obey the Father's command. This is one thing we see over and over with the way that Jesus conducted himself in the, in the, in the hours leading up to the crucifixion. He was making a choice, and he continued to make that choice in, at every phase. And he did not he did not blame his disciples for abandoning him. He did not accuse um, Judas in, in a way as far as, as um, betraying him. He was making a choice. He did not even necessarily blame the Jews or the Romans. He spoke of the higher authority of God in everything um, that he did. And so uh, there's one phrase in this that uh, it says, Jesus knowing everything that was going to happen to him. Um, that, that basically informs my take on the sermon in a sentence here. Jesus taught us courage and faith through his arrest and trials, but he also demonstrated the great love that he had for us. It's one thing to be brave in a moment when you don't know what's about to happen, to react and to respond in a way that may be adrenaline and and, and, and whatever else maybe training kicks in, and you do what you're supposed to do or what, what is good and what is right. But if you knew, if you knew what you were about to go through, would you respond the same way? You know, Jesus knew what he was going to go through. He knew how he was going to be treated. He knew the things they were going to say. He knew the punishments he was going to endure. And he knew the manner by which he would die. And with courage and faith and, and, and what God had planned... And also with the love that he had for us, he went through it anyway. That, I believe, is a lesson that we can certainly learn. We talk about Jesus being our example, being a model for our lives. And it's difficult enough to look at the teachings and, and obey what he says. It gets even more difficult to see that he lived a sinless life. And we have to try to model that somehow in our lives. The way that, that he met every situation with the perfect amount of, of love and truth and, and just a response that was genuine for him. But when we look at these last hours when Jesus is beaten and tried and crucified, knowing what was going to happen faithfully, going ahead, um, that's a tough example. That's a tough example for us to follow. But that is exactly what Jesus has laid down for us. So let's read this passage, John chapter 18 through chapter 19, verse 16. Um, we'll be looking at what happens uh, in these, in these uh, hours here. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, now this was the high priestly prayer that we studied last week. When Jesus had spoken these words, um, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to, to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of, the, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, 
having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Ananias, for he was the the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at at the uh, door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly openly in the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Ananias then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear uh, Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Then they, led, or, yeah, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him, to, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And, he, and after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now, if you've got a little number beside that word, you look into the cross-references, the word there is insurrectionist. We'll get back to that in a minute. When Pilate looked, or when, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, 
wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him or, and sat down on the judgment seat that is called the stone of pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Okay, so there's a, a whole lot here. I mean, I mean, a whole lot. And so some of the things that I'm going to, to go over are just summaries, um, but some of the things I'll go into some, some depth and talk about just a little bit. Um, so the, the setting, Jesus has just finished his teachings, and although it's taken us several weeks, this has been just a matter of hours. Remember, Jesus was teaching his disciples about the Lord's Supper, but he had just released Judas to go and do what Judas was going to do. Jesus finishes the Lord's Supper, and they actually leave, and they go to um, they, they, they go away. They're headed towards this garden that, that Jesus knows about and that his disciples know about, that Jesus went to multiple times. Um, but on the way, Jesus stops and talks to them about the, the vine and the branches. He talks to them uh, about him being the way. And then he, he prays this prayer that we studied last week. All of this happened in just a matter of hours. And so they, they cross over the, the brook of Kidron, which was probably dry at this particular time. It was only a brook or a stream during rainy seasons. And so he crosses over that, and then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, now, John doesn't name it the Garden of Gethsemane, but the other Gospels actually tell us this. Um, and even to this day, there is an olive garden out there with an, with an olive press out there. And so it's very likely that, that the place where Jesus prayed is, is more than likely known to, to us where, uh, where it actually was. Um, other Gospels also tell us that when Jesus prayed, he prayed so intensely that his sweat became as great drops of blood. Now that whole scene, John doesn't tell that, and, and, and it's probably just because by the time John's writing, the other three Gospels are well known, they're in circulation, and so John tells certain things, and there's certain things that he just doesn't tell. He chose not to talk about the prayer uh, that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it is important for us to remember that everything that happens here was part of God's plan and works to show us the type of love that he has for us. And so that's why I mentioned the, 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 the verse where it says Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him or knowing everything that was going to happen to him, he stepped forward. So, so that's what we need to remember is that, that everything that happens here. Now, did Jesus know everything that was going to happen all the time? Did he walk around with omniscience and, and just being able to see the future all the time? That I don't know. But what we do know is that in this particular passage, it says Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. And it didn't necessarily have to be prophecy or a vision into the future. He just simply knew how people were going to behave. He knew how the, the Jews were going to behave, and he knew what the law was, and he knew that they wanted to be sure that they executed in the right way, so they knew that he knew that they would hand him over to the Romans. He knew how the Romans would treat him, and he knew that since he wasn't a Roman citizen, he was going to be crucified. So he knew all of these things, and yet he continued to stand firm and to step forward. So when it was time... And I mean that to say that when it was God's timing, 
Judas arrived. Now, again, I'm not putting Judas's sin on God, but what I'm saying is that God didn't allow that to happen until it was time. Judas arrived uh, with a band of Roman and Jewish soldiers to arrest Jesus. Um, so so this, is, this is kind of that, that first scene where, you know, in the dark, these soldiers come. So most likely, you know, Judas went and, got in, and went to the priests, um, and the priest sent him with some officers, and then they decided to get some Romans just in case there was a riot, because sometimes Jesus was surrounded by huge crowds, and they didn't know what they were going to get into. And it's also likely that Judas swung by this upper room first, and then when he, Jesus wasn't there, he said, well, he's likely gone to the garden. And so that's where they probably would have went and they would have came from. And so it says that they brought torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so these men were going prepared for a fight, prepared for trouble to arrest a man who had never been violent in his entire life. And so that's really an interesting sight there. So Jesus, knowing that it was his time, or specifically knowing that his hour had come, stepped forward and questioned the soldiers concerning their mission. Who are you looking for? He asked them, who are you looking for? Now, you might say, well, Jesus was famous and popular and everybody would have known who he looked like, but you have to remember it's dark, um, and this is a long time before electricity, so by the, by the light of a torch, you know, a lot of people look very similar. And so it was important that, that, that everybody was identified. Um, so other Gospels tell us that Judas came to Jesus and kissed his hand and called him rabbi to identify him to the officers. Um, so we do know that that probably happened. John doesn't mention that. John's focus is specifically on Jesus and Jesus voluntarily laying down his life through these next couple of events. So although um, Jesus was known in the region at this time, it was, like I said, it was dark, and so they wanted to make sure that they had the right man. So they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when Jesus replies, he says, I am he, um, the force and the directness of his reply causes the men to retreat and stumble in the darkness. Now, there's a couple of takes on this. Some people say that Jesus, when he said, I am he, the, the voice and the power of his proclamation, because again, this is another I am statement here, which, which is the name of God. Some people say that the power of that, the divine power of that is what knocked the man over. And, and other people believe that it was the directness with which Jesus stepped forward and said, I am he, caused these men to just retreat, and it's dark. Uh, and if you've ever been to um, Israel, you know that like, there, there's rocks everywhere. There's stumbling blocks literally everywhere. That's one of the best illustrations you can ever have for a place like Israel because there are stumbling blocks everywhere. And so if they stopped and tripped and fell and you know, had their little Barney Fife moment or whatever, that may have been what happened. But anyway, they fall. And when they get up, they, they kind of, Jesus kind of waits for them to compose themselves and he kind of resets, okay? So who you're looking for, Jesus of Nazareth, well, I am he. So he tells them that he is the one. Um, now, and, and so what Jesus also says is, if you're looking for me, let these others go. And so this, Jesus is still protecting his disciples till the end. Let these others go. And so it seems like maybe somebody makes a move to take Jesus at this time. And this is when Peter, now we learn in Luke that Peter had actually gotten a sword during, during this whole time of, of the Lord's Supper and everything. And so he takes his sword out. And, you know, it used to confuse me when, when I was younger and, and Peter cut off a guy's ear. I'm like, of all the things that you would try to do, why, why go for the ear? Um, but most likely what Jesus, I mean, what Peter did was try to swing to cut the man's head clean off. That's probably what he tried to do. And the man dodged. And when the man dodged, that's when he cut off an ear. And sometimes I wish maybe the man didn't dodge and we would have one of the greatest miracles we'd ever seen because Jesus was going to put on whatever Peter cut off. So if he cut off his head, then that would have been a pretty cool miracle as well. But either way, um, Jesus heals this man. Now, John's actually the only gospel writer that tells us the man's name. His name is Malchus. But it actually, John doesn't tell us that Jesus healed him. We get that information from other gospels as well. Um, so even to the very end, you know, Jesus is showing that, that he is about love. He's about compassion. He's not about violence. And, he, and, he, and he's not about doing things the way of the world. When you look at this right here and you read this, this doesn't sound like the victory chapter from anybody's hero story. It doesn't sound like the chapter that's describing this great and epic victory. It just doesn't. It sounds like a defeat when you read it, but it's not a defeat, and that's the beauty of the story of Jesus. So Jesus tells his disciples that it is time for him to drink the cup which the Father has placed before him. 
And so he's clearly surrendering to the will of the Father regardless of the personal cost that comes to him. And so that's something that we need to remember. In the moment of testing, we must also be willing to lay aside our lives for the work of the Father. Now, not everybody is called to be a martyr. Not everybody is even going to go on trial for being a Christian, but we're all going to have some kind of testing. Some kind of trial is going to come in our lives, and at that moment, we need to remember the example that Jesus set for us. Jesus did not back down. Jesus did not waver. Instead, he stepped forward and said, I am he. And so there may come a time where we are challenged, and there will be personal cost. That's just the way of it. Remember, this world hated Jesus. This world really does hate us. Those of us that are, that are really following Scripture, the world hates us. And so when we step forward, they're not going to say, oh, okay, we were just wondering. They're going to take some kind of action against us, just like they took an action against Jesus. Okay, so the next thing we're going to look at is Jesus' appearance before Ananias. Um, and, and the way that John records this, you've got a little bit of that, and then you've got a little bit of Peter's denial, and then you go back to that. So I'm going to kind of treat the whole trial before Ananias in one place, and then we'll go to Peter's denial after that. Um, so Jesus endures a series of trials by the Jews, but John focuses on his interaction with Ananias, um, the father-in-law of the high priest. Now, it's important to point out that according to Jewish law, Virtually everything that happened here was illegal. A man cannot be tried for a capital offense on the same day that he was arrested. Uh, he also cannot be condemned on the same day that the trial is held. Everything about what the Jews were doing at this particular time is illegal. They're just walking over their laws in order to get what they wanted done against Jesus. So Jesus was brought to Ananias, who was the real power behind the high priest. Ananias had like five sons, and the Romans had deposed him because he was wielding too much power. And so each of his five sons had become high priest, and now he was on his son-in-laws. And so his son-in-law was actually the high priest at this particular time. So he was kind of like the godfather of the high priest, and there's really no other way to look at it. He had that kind of power over everything that was going on, and so obviously they, they bring Jesus to him. Now... Ananias questions Jesus about the authority or his authority to preach and make disciples. Ananias was not confused at this point. He was not curious. This is not, this is not another you know, coming of Nicodemus in the middle of the night just seeking answers. Ananias is really trying to trick Jesus or trip Jesus up and make him incriminate himself. Um, but the nature of the question is, are you simply a rabbi that we disagree with and hate, or are you truly the Messiah? And basically, he's trying to get Jesus to, you know, expose some, some crime that he's committed. But instead, Jesus just says, everything about my ministry has been public. I have been in the temple. I have been in the synagogue. I have been in public places. I've not said things in secret. So why don't you go and ask the people that have listened to me what it is that I have said? And so for this, and for this very honest and direct response, one of the officers of the chief priests actually slaps Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus told us to turn the other cheek, but in this case, Jesus doesn't exactly turn the other cheek. He basically challenges the man, you know, why did you slap me? Because if, if I said something that was a lie, prove that it's a lie. Otherwise, it's the truth, and you've got no reason to slap me. So he actually challenges the man on this particular treatment right here. So it is very clear um, that Jesus or that Ananias um, would not be able to trick Jesus into incriminating himself. So he sends him sends the Lord on to Caiaphas. So Ananias, although he had all the I guess you'd say authority, um, what he didn't have or, or all the power, what he didn't have is the actual legal authority to do things. And so that's why it had to go over to Caiaphas. So John doesn't record the interaction that Jesus had with Caiaphas, but we know that there was a false. Uh, there were false witnesses and useless evidence brought before Jesus uh, in a mock trial. So if you read some of the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it talks about the fact that there were lots and lots of witnesses brought in and their stories didn't agree with each other. Um, even the story that, that kind of got the ball rolling where Jesus said, you know, well, he didn't say this, but he said, you tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. They were taking it to mean that Jesus was talking about the physical temple, um, but he was not talking about that. He was talking about his body and the crucifixion and resurrection. Um, but they did bring that out and kind of challenge with that, but that was basically 
all that they could really get. There was a certain point where Jesus actually said, um, you know, he, he says that, that you've said that I'm the Messiah. You will see me from now on seated at the right hand of the authority or the power, and then you will see me coming on the clouds. And so when Jesus says that, there's a couple of things that we recognize. One, he is claiming to be the Son of God. He is claiming to sit at the right hand of God. But he's also claiming to be deity himself because clouds were the vehicles of deity as far as they were concerned. So that one thing, that's when Caiaphas stands up and tears his robes and says, what more do you need? We have blasphemy right here. We don't need anybody's testimony. And so he was ready to to form an, an official conviction against Jesus at this particular time. So this was enough for the Jews to charge him with blasphemy and bring him to the Romans for execution. Now, it's important at this point that I mention blasphemy isn't illegal in Rome. Um, They had so many gods that by worshiping one god, you were automatically blaspheming another. And so they couldn't make blasphemy illegal. And so they're going to bring a different charge against Jesus when they go before the Romans. So in the moment of Jesus' trial, he was not arrogant but he was not afraid either. You don't see a point where Jesus is arguing to, de- to save or to defend his life. Now, he's not going to let a lie stand. He's not going to let a false you know, truth be, be out there about him. But at the same time, he's not afraid. He's not trying to get out of anything. He is just simply going about this um, as, as he needs to with honesty and integrity, but at the same time with no fear whatsoever. He spoke the truth and trusted his life into the hands of the Father. Remember, knowing all that was going to happen to him. So no matter the test we are facing, we must be willing to be a witness and trust the Father with the outcome. There are going to be times where it doesn't go the way it went for Jesus. There are going to be times when we are a witness and we speak up about Jesus and it goes well. There will be those times. It was true in your life. Somebody spoke up about Jesus and it worked out well. But then there are going to be times where it doesn't work out well. When we stand for Jesus and there is a cost, when there is some kind of penalty that we have to pay, and we just have to be willing to trust God with that outcome. Because we look at Jesus and we say, wow, that's how bad it could get. We could be tried, we could be beaten, we could be executed. But remember, Jesus was then given a name that is above every name, and he was lifted up. He was seated at the right hand of God, and all of his enemies were made his footstool. And there is no other name given whereby men must be saved. So Jesus has been exalted. He has been glorified. He has been rewarded for that sacrifice. God is not going to ask you to make a sacrifice that he will not bless you once you make that sacrifice. So we need to be aware of that as well. So now let's look at Peter, Peter's unfortunate denial of Jesus. So when Jesus is arrested, most of his disciples fade into the night and disappear, but John and Peter follow along. Now, we don't know how, but what we, what we see here is that John, John's the other disciple, by the way. He says Peter and another disciple. John's that. He doesn't put his name in there. Um, but, but he is the other disciple, and somehow he was known to the high priest. This doesn't mean that he was a friend of the high priest or that he was in some, somehow in favor with the high priest. It just means that he was known. So he was actually admitted in when Jesus was brought in and arrested, but Peter actually waited outside the gate. And so this would have been more of like a, 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 a larger house, a manor type house. And so he would have had his, his buildings, but he would have also had a courtyard that would have been walled in. And so Peter's standing outside that courtyard in, um, in, in the gate. So even though John doesn't record everything that happens during the trials of Jesus, it's likely that he's the reason we know the details. Remember, the rest of the disciples kind of vanish. We don't hear from them. We don't see them. We don't know where they're at. Peter obviously has his moment where we know what's happening, and then he disappears as well. So the only way we really know what happened is through maybe the word of John or maybe the word of one or two believers on the Sanhedrin. Other than that, we don't know how these things occurred. So John is giving us some details that otherwise we don't get. So he probably recounted the events to the other disciples and told them this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And possibly a lot of those stories were told during the time that, that they thought Jesus was gone, where they, they were waiting on Jesus to be resurrected and didn't even know that's what they were waiting on. Probably some of those stories were told even then and, and made an impact on the disciples that recorded these things later. Uh, Matthew and, and Luke are very detailed in what they provide. Mark is detailed. Um, but John just kind of seems to take little snippets and, and show those things that we need to see. And one thing he thought we needed to see was Peter. 
and Peter's denial. So Peter, outside the, the courtyard, John actually speaks to the portress, the lady that was kind of working the, the gate there, and, and, and tells her to let Peter in. So Peter comes in, and he stands by the fire. Now this, this servant girl, who is in no way an authority of anybody or anything, says, you're not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? And, and she asks it in the negative sense. It's a question expecting a, a negative answer. So she's expecting him to say no. It's very easy in that case. You're not a Christian, are you? You're not one of those crazy Christians, are you? And, and, and Peter said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not. And so he goes about his business warming himself by the fire because it, it will get cool. It's an arid um, temperate place. So even in April or, or maybe March, depending on when Passover fell that time, it's dark, the wind's blowing, it could be cool. He could have gotten cool. So anyway, he says, no, I'm not. And so he's just busy you know, getting himself warm. He finds it easy to deny his relationship uh, to Jesus at this point and even denies um, Jesus a second time in the same manner. So once again, some more people ask him, are you, you know, one of Jesus' disciples or you're not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? And he says, no, I'm not. But finally, a kinsman of Malchus, the guy that, that, that um, had the unfortunate ear accident, um, accuses Peter of being in the garden with Jesus and Peter begins to curse and deny that he even knew Jesus as the rooster crows. Now, some of that we get from other Gospels. We know that, that you know, in this one, Peter just denies it again. Um, but in other Gospels, we find out that, that Peter was, was swearing and he was cursing. So it, what that means is that he was taking vows, um, saying that, that you, know, you know, by God or by, you know, some other, some other power that he viewed, he was swearing that he didn't know Jesus, but he was also swearing as in bad words that he was saying, you know, he, did, he didn't know God. And so, so he kind of took a very deep dive off of the, the path of holiness and righteousness to deny that he knew Jesus. Well, that's about the time that the rooster crows. And also, one of the other Gospels tells us that it's at that point that Peter looks and he sees Jesus, and Jesus is looking at him. And it says at that point uh, that, that when Peter saw him, he goes away and he weeps bitterly. So... What can we learn from Peter and his denial? Well, Peter was ready to fight and die for Jesus under his own terms, but he was not ready to stand and be arrested for his testimony. Maybe y'all have seen the movie Braveheart. The Romans could have taken his life, but he was not willing to give up his freedom. When we look at Peter, he was ready to fight. He, 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 could have, he could have pulled that sword and he could have fought and he could have died in a blaze of glory. And be sure he would have died. The disciples thought they wanted to fight, but best I can tell, there were two swords among them. Peter had one and maybe somebody else did. And so they, they were ready to fight, but they were fighting Roman soldiers who did not lose. Um, and also the, the, the chief priest officers who probably would, would have just stayed back and watched the Romans do their dirty work. Um, but... They were going to lose, but they were ready to fight. Now, if it came down to, to fisticuffs and, 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 and melee and, and, and screaming and hollering, they would have been good. But to stand before the Roman judges and to face the things that they were going to have to face, the men had no stomach for it. Peter didn't. None of the other disciples did either. And so what we can see here is that there's, there's two ways. Someone might ask you, would you be willing to die for Jesus? And hopefully all of us would say, well, yes, of course I would die for Jesus. Would you be willing to be embarrassed for Jesus? Would you be willing to be shamed for Jesus? Would you be willing to lose friends for Jesus? Would you be willing to damage family relationships for Jesus? Would you be willing to lose a job for Jesus? Would you be willing to lose the things that you actually do hold dear. I think we can all kind of capture the idea Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. We can capture that idea. But what about, what about that to live part? What about that to live? That belongs to Christ. And so sometimes we have to take a loss. Sometimes we have to take some kind of major cost for standing for Jesus. Peter would have fought to the death but he wouldn't have stood and been arrested at that time. You know, and here's the thing. It's easy for us to point the finger at Peter, but how many times have we denied Jesus with either our words or our actions? You know, sometimes there are opportunities for us to speak up about things. And when we reject those opportunities, 
Are we not denying Jesus just as Peter did? Now, Peter had great sorrow for his sins. There's always hope for those of us who mourn and repent our sins. So Jesus went, I mean, Peter went away and wept bitterly. And there was hope for Peter. Peter was going to be a leader in the church. He was going to do many more things in the name of Jesus. And we have to realize that if we have made those mistakes, if this morning you have thought, well, yes, I probably have denied Jesus with my actions or with my words or with something, repent just as Peter did. And Jesus will bring us to a place where we are still useful to him. And so now, let's look at the appearance before Pilate. Um, in a continuation of illegal activities, the Sanhedrin passed condemnation upon Jesus on the same day of his trial. Again, that's, that's illegal. Um, before I get into this a little bit, I'll tell you just a tiny little bit about Pilate. Um, Pilate was a, um, he was not Rome's favorite son. Pilate had been sent to, to uh, the area, they would have called it Palestine, um, but he had been sent to the area of Judea to keep the peace. Um, the Jews were notoriously bad to rebel. I mean, they, they rebelled often. There were small little insurrections. There were larger insurrections. He was always dealing with problems, and, and he, he, was, he was not always wise. He provoked the Jews in a lot of ways, and so he would have shields, this headquarters that it talks about. He would have had shields around the walls of his headquarters that would have represented different pagan gods, um, so that would have been a thing. Um, there was one rebellion, and, and Pilate's soldiers came and tried to put down that rebellion. The fighting actually spilled over into the temple. And there was bloodshed within the temple during a day of sacrifice. And so human blood was mixed with the, the sacrificial blood. That was a major, major problem for the Jews at that particular time. So they were always, uh, the, the Jews hated Pilate and were trying to get rid of him. Caesar was very impatient with Pilate and had even censored him a couple of times. And so Pilate was an embattled politician. Um, he was on the verge of losing his position. And, and when you lose position like that, you lose face in the Roman Empire. Uh, you go into exile, your life is never the same again. And so Pilate was kind of walking on eggshells trying to handle the situation in the best way that he could to keep peace. That was his ultimate goal. Let's keep peace. Let's not do the right thing. Let's keep peace. And so that's ultimately what guides Pilate. So Rome allowed the Jewish court to try matters of religion but reserved the right of execution. Um, so Jesus was brought before the Roman appointed governor Pontius Pilate. So the Jews could judge and they could even punish to some degree but they couldn't execute. Now that didn't stop them from executing people from time to time um, but that was against the Roman law. What they typically would do is bring somebody before Pontius Pilate. Now, when the Jewish leaders arrived with Jesus, they would not enter Pilate's residence so that they could participate in the remainder of the Passover celebrations. You might say, well, I don't remember anything about entering a Gentile's house making you unclean written in the Bible, and that's because it's not. This was part of their ceremonial laws that basically indicated that if you entered into the, to the house of a Gentile during one of these feasts or whatever, you couldn't participate anymore. Now, here's the thing. We should notice the depth of their hypocrisy. They were willing to lie the Son of God to his execution, but they were unwilling to break one of their ceremonial laws. This is, this is just kind of par for the course for these guys. So, so there were certain laws that they respected and revered, and most of them were the ones they had written themselves, but the laws that God had written were the laws that they were willing to trample over in order to get what they wanted. And so you should not bear false witness against your neighbor is exactly the law they were breaking, and yet there they were scared to, to defile themselves for the rest of the ceremony. So... Pilate doesn't want to deal with, with this at all. Um, and, and one little thing about timeline. Um, from other Gospels, we find that Jesus probably was crucified or put on the cross around 9 a.m. Um, but then John says that when Jesus was actually convicted by Pilate, it was the sixth hour, which by Jewish reckoning is actually noon. Well, um, according to Roman reckoning, they reckon time from basically midnight like we do. And so if John was keeping with Roman reckoning, even though your Bible, if it's got a little note by the sixth hour, it probably says it was around noon. Um, if John was keeping with Roman reckoning, then it, then it coincides with the, what Mark said, meaning that the sixth hour, six hours from midnight is six o'clock in the morning. So all of this is happening very early. So I, I don't know about you guys, but not everybody is a morning person. And so they wake up Pilate. They won't come into his house because his house is somehow dirty, but they want to deliver this, this prisoner to be executed. They don't really even want to tell him what he's done. He says, well, what's he done? 
said, we wouldn't be bringing him to you if we hadn't already convicted him. Take him and do what you do. Pilate wants a little trial. And so he brings Jesus in, and he questions Jesus. And here's the thing, he cannot find any guilt in Jesus. Pilate probably thought Jesus was crazy, but he did not think Jesus was guilty. And so what the Jews eventually said was that he had claimed himself to be king of the Jews. They didn't bring up the blasphemy thing because blasphemy, again, is not a law, uh, that is not against the law in Rome or in Roman law. And so they say that he's made himself into a king. So he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Um, and, and, and basically... Um, Jesus says, what he says is, I, I might be a king, but my king is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then my soldiers would have fought you and I wouldn't have been brought before you, but my kingdom is not of this world. So basically, um, he is not a threat to Caesar. They're painting him as an insurrectionist. They are saying that he is rising up against Caesar, but Jesus basically says, do you see an insurrection? Do you see anybody fighting? No, I am not an insurrectionist. Who's raising the trouble but the, the chief priests and the Pharisees themselves? So when Pilate questions Jesus, he discovers that he does not believe the claims of the Jews. Now, Pilate is not on the verge of being redeemed at this point. The Jews didn't like Pilate, and Pilate didn't like the Jews. And so he no more wanted to do what they wanted him to do than, than, than they wanted to, to please him or help him in any way. So he is just simply done with the whole matter and wants to be finished with it. Um, so he reports to the Jews that Jesus is innocent. Over the course of this little trial, if you want to call it that, Pilate says that Jesus is innocent at least three times. Um, also, we know from other accounts that, that Jesus was sent back and forth between Pilate in Herod, um, but John doesn't share any of that. He just skips straight to the stuff with Pilate. Um, and, and what's interesting is Pilate offers a very ironic choice to the Jews. Barabbas was a political insurrectionist, guilty of trying to overthrow Roman rule in Judea, and he was released so that Jesus could be executed on the same charges. Barabbas was one of many that had been trying to overthrow Roman rule. And that was a pretty popular theme in Judea during that time. Jesus was not guilty of that, but yet he still, um, he still suffered from, from, that, from that particular, uh, uh, I guess, legal judgment at the end of things. So I think, again, Pilate's still trying to release Jesus, and so what he does is he has Jesus flogged. Uh, and that was a gruesome practice of beating a prisoner with, with a multi-pronged whip until they were nearly dead. Now, most all of y'all have been church long enough to know the cat of nine tails. It would have been this whip that would have had been frayed at the end, and each of the little ends would have had a piece of rock or metal or something like that. So when they hit Jesus, they would have hit him and drug it across his back, ripping out flesh. It would have been incredibly gruesome. 39 lashes is all that they felt like a, a person could actually endure. And so what that means is that Jesus was beaten within an inch of his life. Sometimes it exposed bone, sometimes worse. And so this was a terrible thing. So they flogged him. But that wasn't enough. To add insult to injury, the soldiers fashioned a crown of thorns. Um, now this was just basically superficial injuries. I say that because it's not on my head. Um, but these thorns would have been long and they would, have not have, they, they would have been very strong. They wouldn't have broken very easily. Um, and from what I understand, they sting like the devil when they go in anyway. And so they would have pressed it on his head. So now you know that scalp wounds bleed really badly. And so his back is in ruins. His, his head is bleeding down all over his face. And then they take and they put a, a, a purple robe over him and they call him the king. Now, what we already know is that when the Jews were involved in their trial with him, after they had decided that he was a blasphemer, they, put, they covered his head and punched him and, and told him to um, prophesy and say, which one of us actually hit you? So Jesus probably already, his face was probably already swollen and disfigured from that beating, not to mention the flogging, and, and the Romans were never known to be gentle. And so when Pilate brings Jesus out and says, Behold the man... He was just a, a open wound. Jesus was already beaten to the point most people, most people probably wouldn't have survived it. 
So the beatings and abuse that Jesus endured at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans would have been enough to put lesser men in the grave. But not only does Jesus survive, but he continues to testify about the Father. Jesus comes out this way. So they were bringing him into the courtyard of Pilate, bringing him out before the Jews over and over again. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is being paraded back and forth. And every time he goes before the Jews, they've done more harm to him. They've done more damage to him. And yet he's not you know, blithering away. He's not passing out. He's standing there strong and he is able to continue to testify about the Father. So Pilate tries to release Jesus, but the Jews then question his loyalty to Caesar and he finally agrees to judge Jesus. So this is what they do. They say, you're no friend of Caesar because anybody that claims to be a king is a threat to Caesar. And so basically they take this, this, this threat that they brought in from the beginning and try to, to use that against him. Well, even in the middle of all of this, the Jews finally can't contain themselves and say that he's a blasphemer because he's called himself a son of God. Well, that's absolutely no crime in Rome. If you remember from both Greek and Roman mythology, there were sons and daughters of the gods running all over the place. And so that wouldn't have been a crime at all. And so at that time, Pilate isn't, isn't wanting at all to execute Jesus. Instead, he steps back. He's a little bit afraid. I mean, do, does he really have a Hercules on his hands here? Like, what is he dealing with? And so for him, this then becomes some way, let me, let me release Jesus any way I can. But then they pull the, the, the Caesar card and that's basically what eventually convinces Pilate to do what he needs to do. So he sits in the official seat of judgment and he goads the Jews by calling Jesus the king of the Jews one more time. Uh, and for once in their lives, the religious leaders pretend to be good little Romans by calling for the execution of Jesus on the grounds of insurrection. And even the chief priests, he says, we have no God but Caesar. How did he even fix his mouth to say that? We don't know because they hated the Romans. They hated Caesar. They hated everything that they stood for, yet they were still able to say that in that moment. So Pilate judges Jesus and hands him over to his soldiers to be crucified. So as Jesus stands, bloody, crowned with thorns, robed in purple, he looked nothing like a king of this world, but we know him to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what I want to remind you. This is, this is our victory story. When we sing victory in Jesus, we do need to at some point remember this image. Jesus standing before His own people. The people that He loved. The people that He created. The people that had challenged Him His whole earthly life. He's beaten. He's robed in purple in a mocking sense. A crown of thorns is pressed on His head. And some other gospel, they say that He even had a scepter. So Jesus is there in that state, he doesn't look like a king according to the world. But why would he? There is no other thing in the Bible that agrees with the way the world wants to be. When we look at our laws, there are a few that the world would agree with. Don't kill unless somebody gets in your way. But for the most part, the world rejects our laws. They reject our God. They reject our, our way that we believe the world was created. They, they reject everything about us, including our God. And so if you're looking to Jesus trying to find the hero, he's not going to follow the worldly standard. He is vastly different. You know, it's an ordeal for us just to read this account, but Jesus experienced it firsthand so that he could be our Savior. So we need to remember that. This was his hour. So many weeks ago when we were reading about the, the wedding in Cana and Jesus told his mother Mary, this is, this is not my hour, my hour has not yet come. Now his hour is here. He was willing to endure it all so that we could become one with the Father. Remember, that's Jesus' language. Be one with me, be one with the Father. This was why he did this. The next time that we are tempted to doubt, to fear, or sin... We should remember the picture of Jesus standing before the crowds in that state. We should remember that. We should remember what He had to go through. He stood so that we could live. And we should love and adore Him for that sacrifice. Christianity is a bloody religion. It, it is one that shows us the price of our sin in the most beloved figure. You can't read the Gospels without falling in love with Jesus. He's the teacher. He's the healer. He's the provider. He goes so far out of his way for so many people, no one could have anything against him. 
Yet here he is, bloody, beaten, broken, but yet he still stands. Now, I don't want to make an error. He was standing out of obedience to God. But he was also standing because of his love for us. And we need to remember that. So, to kind of wrap this up, the work and will of God are hard things for us. But we must be faithful even in the face of strong opposition. What God's really calling us to do is difficult. If you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, well, it hasn't been very hard for me to be a Christian. Maybe you haven't been being the kind of Christian God's called you to be. It's difficult. Day in, day out, denying ourselves, resisting sin, resisting doubt and fear, and making a stand for Jesus is difficult. Jesus faced the worst of humanity and the deepest of our sins so that we could become His. We now belong to Him. We're His possession. So remember that. You were bought with a great price, so remember that you are His treasured possession. It is not a stretch or inaccurate to say that Jesus did this for us. We realize He was also being obedient to the Father, and that comes first. But there was also a motivation to, for us to be His, for us to be His treasured possession. You know, we'll be treated with the same hostility by the world, but we are loved with the greatest love that was ever shown. What Jesus endured, even before the cross, is horrific. But it was not without point. It was not without purpose. Everything that He did, He did so that we could be together with God. He was sent for a purpose. He said, for this reason, I have come. And so He is proclaiming God. He is proclaiming that oneness. He is proclaiming eternal life. And Jesus did not just use His words, but He also used His very life. He paid with His life so that we could understand that message. So, go out of here, not sad because we've heard bad things happen to Jesus, but joyful because we know He did that out of love. And we belong to Him. There is no one that can take us because we are His. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for the sacrifice of Jesus. And Lord, it is so difficult for us to read this. It's so difficult for us to see what Jesus went through and to know that He paid that price for us. What makes it even harder is the fact that sometimes we know that, that we don't live worthy of that kind of sacrifice. That He has done so much and yet sometimes we do so little. It convicts us. And so Father, I pray that You remind us that, that each day for us, it's not just a journey but it's also a battle for us because we are standing up not against the kind of forces that are easy to fight. We could be like Peter. We could draw the sword and fight our enemies and try to kill them, but you came to save, not to kill. And so, Father, I pray that we would remember that as well. We, we are not here to do physical harm. We are here to be a testimony, to be a witness of Jesus Christ to this world. This world definitely makes us angry and makes us want to fight. But that's not what you've called us to do. You've called us to love. And so, Father, I pray that we can live a life that shows the same kind of active, sacrificial love that we have seen this morning in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.